I used to, back in the day, watch the news. Did anyone used to watch the news? I used to watch the news until the news turned into kind of a, a bluster. And people yelling at each other and arguing. And I thought, oh, well, that's just the news. And so I would turn on, of course, sports news, like Sports Center. And it's the same thing. There are people on with their opinions and they're arguing back and forth. And the great things about opinions are is that everyone has one. And no matter what opinion everyone has, it's the right opinion. Correct? Exactly. And so what happens to us in life is we live in this moment in time in which there's this competitive clash of ideas based on opinions rather than on facts. And folks seem to think that the opinion they hold on whatever political topic, social topic, or anything else, they're right and everyone else is wrong. Pretty comfortable way of living, wouldn't you say? I like to go through most days assuming that I'm right about everything and anyone that disagrees with me is wrong. Not a good practice, would you say? Of course not. So we live in kind of a, a caustic age, if you will, in which we value the capacity of individuals to wield their opinion and to wield their authority in a way that makes either other people not look as smart as they are or perhaps simply helps us appreciate people flexing their power and their prowess in front of us. Perhaps there's a, a different way in which we might live, a, a set of skills that we might develop that could help us live our lives differently than going around and flexing our power and authority and opinions all the time. Now, one of my favorite bloggers that I read every single day is named Seth Godin. And you can subscribe to Seth's blog and you get an email in your email box every single day with a little blog by Seth Godin. And this particular one came across my email on June 28th and I thought it was appropriate, so it's up on the screen. It's on the topic of snake handling. Anyone here a snake handler? All right, good. I, at least we won't offend those people today. All right, so snake handling. He says this is very different. This is a very different task than snake charming. The first, snake handling, is more common, but it requires heavy equipment and is often dangerous. On the other hand, if you have empathy and patience, it's possible to learn to charm the snakes instead. Now I'm going to give you a moment to read that for yourself again. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, thank you for bringing us and drawing us into this place today by the power of your grace. So that whether we're gathered together online or whether we're gathered in this sanctuary today, we pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to us a great truth about how those who are humble, meek, gentle, will inherit the earth. We thank you for this great promise in Jesus' name. Amen. What Seth Godin is arguing for is this, is he thinks we've built a world of people who know how to form opinions, know how to share those opinions, that's called social media, by the way, 
and have the capacity to purvey their ideas everywhere, but don't necessarily have the soft skills that are needed desperately in the world today, like what he names empathy and patience. We could say meekness, kindness, gentleness. We could put whatever virtue we want in that place to help us understand what's needed in the world in which we live today now more than ever. Today we're looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus again, and we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And here's the Beatitude today. Happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who are humble because they will inherit the earth. These Beatitudes are statements of blessing by Jesus. So you can see every Beatitude or blessing has two parts. The first part is the condition. Happy are those who are humble. And the second part has the promise, for they will inherit the earth. Every beatitude or statement of promise follows the same form. And so during the sermon series called Wayfinders, we're going to be exploring how God helps us as wayfinders and waymakers to live into a new kind of reality in which we might make a new way in a world that has become increasingly loud and is not listening to one another very well. And so for waymakers, we're focused on how God provides in the Beatitudes a way for us to live and how we, as God's people, can help point the way or make a way for others. And the Beatitudes give us a form in which we can do that. Blessed are the people who are humble, or happy are the people who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. This word for humble or gentle in that verse is problematic. It's difficult to translate that particular word out of Matthew's gospel written in Greek into English because it doesn't refer to a behavior, it refers to a virtue. That word for humble is not about doing humble things or taking humble actions or serving other people. It's about the virtue of being gentle, meek, or humble, and that virtue then produces a set of actions that people can see. So it was like Pastor Stephanie was talking about a moment ago in her house. There was a moment at which one of her children cleaned up spilt coffee that that child did not spill. So there's a virtue in her child that manifests itself in behaviors of cleaning up coffee. So on the surface, it looks like cleaning up coffee, right? But it bespeaks something inside that child's character and who they are that brought them to making that particular decision. It's that virtue, that ethic, that characteristic in us. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Happy are the people who have that ethic or character, for they will inherit the earth. I hope you hear a little bit about the paradox here, don't you? They will inherit the earth. And we're going to talk more about that later. But notice who does not inherit the earth. The proud, the arrogant, those who like to flex their power and authority all the time, people who are influencers and highly opinionated individuals, they don't inherit the earth. Who inherits the earth? The humble, the meek, the gentle. And so there's a question I want you to wonder about just for a moment. Why is meekness or gentleness often understood as weakness? How have you understood it? 
and why. Oftentimes we think being meek or gentle is a posture of weakness. Why is that? Why do we think they lack potency in the world in which we live? So I'm going to invite Sharon Chin to come forward. Sharon, I'm so glad you're here to read this text for us. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 19. And in 1 Samuel 19, you're going to hear the biblical story that you saw in the video during the uh, kids' camp moment about Saul, David, and Jonathan. Now, there are some books in the Old Testament that are 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. They don't exist that way actually in Hebrew. When they're written in Hebrew, they're single books. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. When they were translated into Greek, Greek takes up more real estate than Hebrew does. And so they had to divide them into two different scrolls. That's why there's a first and a second. That's your Bible trivia for the day. Try it out sometime this week, all right? Sharon, thanks for being here. Let's hear the text. Good morning. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 9, from the Common English Bible. It's on page 363 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along. As soon as David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life, and Jonathan loved David as much as himself. From that point forward, Saul kept David in his service and wouldn't allow him to return to his father's household. And Jonathan and David made a covenant together because Jonathan loved David as much as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his armor, as well as his sword, his bow, and his belt. David went out and was successful in every mission that Saul sent him on. So Saul placed him in charge of the soldiers, and this pleased all the troops as well as Saul's servants. After David came back from killing the Philistine, and as the troops returned home, women from all over Israel's towns came out to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with tambourines, rejoicing, and musical instruments. The women sang in celebration. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Saul burned with anger. This song annoyed him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he said, but only credit me with thousands. What's next for him, the kingdom itself? So Saul kept a close eye on David from that point on. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, for reading that text. This is 1 Samuel chapter 18, pardon me, not 19, verses 1 to 9, and it's the story of these three individuals. We're going to put their names up on the screen so you can follow along as we go, all right? So there's Saul, who's the current king of Israel. And there was a moment in time when Israel had no king. And they decided they wanted to have a king, so they went to the current person who was exercising some rulership over them. His name was Samuel. He was a prophet and and a judge. And they said, Samuel, we'd like a king. And Samuel says, trust me, you don't want a king. Uh, And the people said, well, why wouldn't we want a king like everyone else? And Samuel says, well, the king's going to raise an army, and then he's going to send all your sons into battle, and they'll get killed. See, you don't want a king. And the people said, no, really, we want a king. And then Samuel said, you really don't want a king because if you have a king, the king is going to tax you to death. You don't want a king. And the people said, 
No, no, we, we really want a king. So Samuel finally said, fine, have whatever king you want. And so they selected their celebrity. They selected someone who was well-known, someone at that time who was popular, who had led military campaigns, was known throughout the land. And so they anointed and made Saul their king. Soon after Saul started his reign as the king of Israel, his leadership capacities began to deteriorate. He just was not as effective. He was the people's choice, but he certainly wasn't God's choice if there was going to be a king. And eventually Saul had a son, and his son's name is Jonathan. So you got the two characters straight so far? There's Saul and Jonathan. Now you know how kings and queens work, right? You all know the queen of England is named who? That was not very convincing, even for a bunch of Americans. The, king, the queen of England is? And her son is named who? Charles. So when Queen Elizabeth passes, who will become the king? Charles. You see how this works, right? So that the, 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 the lineage works from family member to family member. So when Saul dies, who's supposed to be the king? Jonathan. See, you're getting the hang of it. Excellent. All right. Jonathan's supposed to be the king. But before Saul dies, God comes to Samuel, the prophet, and says, Saul's a terrible king, we need a new one, and I'm going to show you who the new king should be. So Samuel sets off, he goes out, you know, south of Jerusalem to a little town called Bethlehem. There he finds this guy named Jesse, he has a bunch of sons, they all parade through one at a time. Samuel says, no, it's none of these guys, it's not that guy, it's not that guy. And they finally get to the youngest one, the shepherd boy. And then as soon as the shepherd boy walks in, God says to Samuel, that's the one. Anoint him, the next king of Israel. Samuel dutifully walks over, opens the horn of oil. David is now anointed to be the next king of Israel. Do you see a problem here between these three people so far? Saul's the current king who thinks his son Jonathan's going to be the king, but Jonathan's not going to be the king because who's going to be the king, everyone? You have got the hang of it. See, you're getting it, right? Now, if you're a therapist, if there's any therapist in the house, you could make a mint of money on this story. The family systems that are on display here are so complex and convoluted and filled with betrayal. It's almost like a soap opera. Suffice to say that all three of them get along very well. David and Jonathan become fast, close friends. The story we read today from 1 Samuel 18 tells you about how close they were, that Jonathan gives all of his armor, his sword, everything to David. What he's done is he's made a form of what's called a covenant with him. What's unusual about this story in the Bible is that there really isn't another story, hardly in Scripture, where it describes the closeness of two people, the intimacy between two people, more than this story about David and Jonathan. Their friendship and love for one another was deep and lifelong between these two young men. Now, it turns out that at that point, David's fame began to grow. And so instead of Saul celebrating David's fame, well, how does Saul react? Oh, he becomes jealous, doesn't he? He becomes embittered. He becomes threatened by David. So even though David and Jonathan are fast friends, Saul becomes anxious about this. 
So much so that after they go out on this military campaign against a group of people called the Philistines, they come back into the city and there's like a parade for them. And during the parade, the people start crying out, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So if you're Saul, your blood's starting to boil a little bit here. Now, why in the world are we talking about this story with this beatitude? Because these three characters form a love-hate triangle. All throughout this episode, David knows that he will be the next king of Israel. David does nothing in this story as long as Saul is alive to actively revolt or rebel against Saul. As long as Saul is alive, David does nothing but swear his allegiance to Saul and Jonathan. Even though David knows that he will replace Saul and that his friend Jonathan will not. Can you imagine the strength of character it takes to hold that truth in confidence with God and to not go around slamming everyone on the head with it? Can you imagine the restraint David has to have to simply sit on the truth of knowing that God has called him to be the king of Israel while someone else is currently the king of Israel. Here's where the beatitude that we're talking about today crosses our path. Blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't want for any moment in this sermon for you to think that David is a model human being. During this chapter of this section of 1 Samuel, he epitomizes this beatitude. Later on in David's life, when he actually becomes a king, he's not so kind. So if you're under the age of 12 in this room right now, or online, go like this. Go ahead. Put your hands on your ears. Good. David is an adulterer, he's a murderer, and he's a rapist. Okay, kids, take your hands off your ears. When we read the Bible, we read it with eyes open. We do not practice a form of flat-footed literalism. We understand that these biblical texts are rich in meaning and convey the story to us of how we might learn and live our lives, both by what people do well and by how they fail. David is such a leader. So at this moment in David's life, we understand what it's like for him to hold the truth of who he is. He practices humility, kindness, gentleness, love, loyalty, or as Seth Godin would say, empathy and patience. Saul, on the other hand, cannot control his rage and his jealousy. He becomes embittered and embattled. And ultimately, his hatred for David and his resentment of how the people of Israel don't love him the way he wants to be loved calls him, causes him to self-destruct. He commits a form of indirect suicide to end his life. And his son Jonathan dies with him. 
And as a witness to David, in one of my favorite stories of the Bible, is that um, when, when Saul and Jonathan both have died, the thing any king would do, a new king would do like David, is he would make sure that everybody in Saul's household was executed so that no one from Saul's household could make a claim on the throne of Israel. That was the natural thing to do 3,000 years ago. Instead of doing that, David finds out that Jonathan has a son. He would be next in line for the throne, wouldn't he? With Saul dead, Jonathan dead, that son would be next in line. His name is Mephibosheth. Try saying it. Mephibosheth. Instead of having Mephibosheth killed, David actually goes and finds Mephibosheth, brings him into the royal palace, tells Mephibosheth that he's going to be treated like one of his own sons, that he'll have a seat at the royal table, and that all of Saul's possessions, his land, his servants, his crops, everything, he was giving all of it to Mephibosheth as his birthright. And he made Mephibosheth his own adopted son. It's the only story in the Bible of an adoption. That's an important story to me because I'm an adopted child. So my biblical namesake is Mephibosheth. What it's like to not belong and then belong. Friends, I want you to understand what it's like to have the ethic of gentleness, of meekness, of humility... And how it embodies itself in behaviors and actions as simple as cleaning up coffee. Well, how does this work in our lives? How, how do we make sense of this? Let me pose a question to you before we get there. Here it is. What situation in your life needs a demonstration of gentleness instead of authority? What situation in your life needs a demonstration of gentleness instead of authority? Well, how does this come alive in us? Well, a couple of ways. Here's four of them. First, flexing authority rarely brings transformation. Flexing authority rarely brings transformation. So let me just take you back to some Thanksgiving meal over the last several years. And let's just say at the Thanksgiving meal, everyone's sitting around the table and uncle so-and-so is a staunch Republican and uncle so-and-so is a staunch Democrat and they get into an argument about politics over the Thanksgiving meal. Was there a moment in that meal that I just made up for you where the Republican uncle all of a sudden said at the table, I can't believe it. You were right all along. How could I be so foolish? Has that ever happened in the history of the world? It has not. So as much as we gather around and like to spectate argument and bluster and arrogance and flexing and authority and power, it rarely changes anyone's mind, does it? But yet we gather around it like it's some kind of car accident that's just happened. Rarely does flexing power transform anything. It makes those who flex the power feel like they've done something, but it rarely shifts or changes the reality we live in. This comes home for us as church because we have to realize that oftentimes what we do is we purvey our religious power and authority into the world in such a way that those who hear it 
hear us telling them what they can and cannot do. We sound like a compliance officers sometimes as religious people. And God is beckoning us to something a little different. Blessed are the meek, the humble, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Number two, the way of love requires more effort, not less. So the cultural forces of the day in which we live value opinion, flexing, loudness, swagger, and celebrity. And the world that Jesus invites us into is a little bit different. This is not our way. Remember, to be gentle does not mean to be weak. It's an assertion of the grace of God, even in violent settings. David embraces a way of living with Saul and Jonathan that risks everything, but he loses nothing. I want you to say that again. David embraces a way of life with Saul and Jonathan that risks everything, but loses nothing. So how many of you in the room, raise your hand, how many of you would agree that Jesus gave everything he had for us? Good. Now put your hands down. How many of you believe that Jesus was not diminished by doing so? You understand what I'm asking? This is the mystery of the Christian life. How can you be completely empty, poured out, sacrificed, given but yet not lose anything. This is the mystery we live in. There's only one way that happens. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's the way Jesus is making for us in the world. This cross of Jesus hanging up there, perhaps the ones hanging around your necks, epitomized in this bread and cup, are consistent reminders to us that meekness, gentleness, and humility have won the day. As people of God, we know that. Our job is to make sure the world around us knows that. Number three, the church must be a school of love. That statement, I did not make that up. That comes from a book written by a man named Norman Wiersbe. His book is called The Way of Love. It's one of the best books that I think people can be reading about what the church is supposed to be. Wiersbe and The Way of Love talks about how the church is a a school where people are trained in the way of love. Like we send children to go to school to learn how to read and do math and to, you know, have some critical thinking skills. The church exists as a school of love. Because we live in a culture that values flexing power, authority, and celebrity. So where are people learning how to be humble, graceful, patient, filled with empathy? People who know how to forgive. People who don't cancel people, but include and love and transform in the name of Jesus. That's the kind of community we want to be. This church is a school of love. Wiersbe says it this way. It's on page four of his book, right at the very beginning. Listen carefully. He says, the way of love requires a transformation of the human heart and a reorientation of one's life. To become proficient in the ways of love, we need a sympathetic and supporting community helping us along the way. True? 
true. Church is not an entertainment venue, friends. It is the school of love. It's the place where we gather to learn how to be God's graceful agents in the world. Here's the last key. Look for meekness moments this week. Look for meekness moments. I don't want you to do anything about it yet. I just want you to look for the moments. Observe them. And there's two ways you can observe a meekness moment. A moment when meekness is needed. Here's the first one. You'll be able to spot them when you see an exercise of power. You'll be able to spot them when you see an exercise of power or abuse. You'll read about them in the newspaper. You'll read about them online. You'll see them in social media. When you see abuses or exercises of power, your ears should perk. Is this a meekness moment? The other way, the second way you can find a meekness moment is when you sense, when you sense your own temptation to control, interrupt, mansplain, flex, or abuse others. Happens to me all the time. Moments which I have to constantly check myself. Am I doing the very thing that God's called me not to do? So you can see it happening in the world around you. You can see it happening in yourself. That's a meekness moment. A moment to pause and say, am I embodying humility, meekness, gentleness at this moment? Or do I just want to flex? Do I want people to know I have power and authority? So here's the last wondering for you this week. Who needs your compassionate presence this week? Where can you listen, pray, and engage with a gentle heart? Today's a pivot point in the Beatitudes because we're asked here to cultivate a virtue. Blessed are the humble or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus makes the promise plain. Haven't talked a lot about the second part of this Beatitude yet. They will inherit the earth. The, what inherit the earth means, it's an idiom. It literally means to inherit dirt or to take ground. So inheriting the earth was a common idiom in the Roman world that they would use to talk about the advancement of the Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire would be the inheritor of the earth. It would take ground. So when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he's actually saying a treasonous statement. It's like walking up to Caesar and poking his finger in his eye. It's one of the most anti-empire things Jesus will ever say in his ministry. Because he's basically saying the way you inherit the earth, the way you take ground, isn't because you have swords and shields and cannons and bombs and money and power and all of these things. The way you inherit the earth is with meekness, gentleness, gracefulness. This is the way of Jesus. And how he's encouraging us to make a way in the world in which we live. Remember, my friends, that ours is not a faith of compliance. Ours is a faith of compassion. And Jesus 
He invites us to be like him. Not just repeat what he did. This is our distinctive work. That God's promise is that we will influence the earth through this way of life. The question that sits with all of us is, do you believe it? Are you willing to risk everything and lose nothing? Are you willing to risk everything and lose nothing? If we become a school of love, we can learn how to do that. Let's pray together. God, we give you, we give you thanks for this powerful truth. That Jesus is telling us that the, the pathway in our lives to, to influence, to power, to any of those things comes through gentleness and meekness. And so, God, we pray this week you would help us to see the meekness moments that appear, to observe them and to watch for them, so that we too might be your agents of peace and grace in the world. We bless you and thank you for showing us this way of life. Help us, God, and help this world to make its way toward humility. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.